The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We're continuing in our sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. Um, we started this two weeks ago. It's a little unusual for us to preach through not a book of the Bible in the fall and spring. Uh, but one of the reasons that we're doing that is occasionally it's good to zoom out to get the big picture of what the Bible teaches. We did that over Advent with the story of Scripture, and we're doing that now with the Apostles' Creed over the, the teaching of Scripture, the, an introduction to the theology, because that's what the Apostles' Creed is. Uh, historically, by the church, it was used to train new believers. It's what parents use to train their kids in what the Bible teaches and what we believe, and we hope that it serves that purpose for us as well. The first week, we looked at just what are we saying when we say, I believe, I confess. The word creed comes from the Latin credo, which means I believe or I confess. And so what are we saying when we say the creed? We said that the creed helps to bring balance to us, to bring clarity to our doctrine and to our beliefs, brings us closer into community and defines the boundaries of that community, and it gives us counsel. It teaches us what's true and how to live. And last week, we looked specifically at God the Father Almighty. I believe in God the Father Almighty and focused especially on the balance that we need to hold these two things together, that God is almighty, that he is all-powerful, all-glorious, but that he's also our Father. And the comfort that we get in the Christian life by holding those two things together and how we get off balance when we forget or overemphasize one or another. This week, we're turning to the next phrase, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in God, creator of heaven and earth. And some of you are really excited about that. You know, maybe you looked ahead and as you were preparing for worship today, you refreshed on Genesis 1 and said, great, we're going to get into intelligent design versus evolution. We're going to get into, were the days 24-hour days? Were they really long days? How long ago was this? How did all this creation stuff work out? Some of you, this is what gets you out of bed in the morning. You can go toe-to-toe with Richard Dawkins about evolution and intelligent design. We're not going to talk about that today. Sorry to disappoint. That's not what we're talking about this morning. If that does interest you, and it is important, so I hope that it does, this Thursday night in Bluffton, there's a screening of a movie called Is Genesis History? It's put together by theologians and pastors from our denomination and from others uh, and explores the topics of intelligent design and irreducible complexity and all these things that are associated with the how and the when of creation. But we often get tunnel vision on those questions, the how and the when, when the question we should be asking is who? Who is the God of creation? And what does it mean that our God is the creator of heaven and earth? And what difference does that make in our lives? That's the question that we're going to ask this morning. Uh, Who is this God of creation? What difference does that make in our lives? And as we said every week, we're not preaching the creed itself, but we're using the creed to guide our exploration of the Bible. So with that in mind, follow along with me uh, in your copy of the word or on the screen behind me as I read Isaiah 40, starting in verse 9. God tells Isaiah, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span 
enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, taught him knowledge, showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. So to whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, And by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, as we approach the topic of you as creator, We pray that you would approach us. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear the truth that you have for us in these words this morning. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. A little bit of context for this passage. It's in the book of Isaiah. uh, And at the time of Isaiah, Israel is in trouble. There are threats outside. Uh, Assyria is the big dog in town right now. They're, They're the powerful nation, and they've got their sights set on Israel. Babylon is the up-and-coming power, and they also have their sights set on Israel. So Israel is threatened from foreign powers outside, and they've got problems on the inside. Their leadership is poor and deplorable. Spiritually, they're anemic. They're, They're turning away from their God. And Isaiah, all through the book, has been saying these two things are related. You know, God, God told you to expect this in, in Deuteronomy, that, that if you follow me in the land that I give you, I will bless you and secure you in the place. But if you don't follow me, I will send other nations to take you away. And that's what's happening in the book of Isaiah. 
In the chapters before this, we got a little bit of hope. In chapter 37, Assyria had invaded Israel and attacked, but they were beaten. Israel survived. They stayed strong. God gave them victory and delivery. And so we have a military victory. In chapter 38, King Hezekiah comes down with a mortal illness, but he recovers and he survives. So we have a physical victory. But then in 39, Hezekiah does something foolish. He invites Babylonian envoys into the palace, into the temple. He shows them the wealth of Israel and how much money they have and how weak they are and how reeling they are from the Assyrian invasion. So as Babylon rises to power, here's this ripe egg or this ripe apple just ready to pluck. It's foolish. And Isaiah tells him that because of your foolishness, Babylon will take you into captivity. They will come and they will get victory. So with that as the immediate context of chapter 40, we're surprised when Isaiah opens chapter 40 with the words comfort. Comfort. He says several times, there's good news. I know you've heard a lot of bad, but there's good news as well. And Isaiah is given this good news, and he's told in verse 9 to go up on a high mountain so that he can deliver it and be heard by many around. He says, get you up on a high mountain and proclaim to the people, behold your God. And here's the good news, verses 10 and 11. The Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. In 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. Isaiah says, I have good news for you. God himself is coming to defend you. And that is good news, but we would understand if Israel were a little skeptical. After all, Babylon is a very powerful nation and they just keep getting stronger. They're like Tom Brady. He's a very good quarterback and he just keeps getting better. The situation in Israel is really, really bad. They're like the Panthers. They're really bad sometimes, and they, it seems like they just keep getting worse. And this message that God himself is coming, it sounds too good to be true. And so to give his people assurance, God, through the prophet Isaiah, assures them that because he is the creator of heaven and earth, he is able to do what he says, and his people should trust in him. And that's the message for us this morning. Because your God is the creator of heaven and earth, you should put your trust in him. This is what we're going to look at this morning. What does it mean that God is creator of heaven and earth, and how does that call us to put trust in him? See, three things about what it means that God is creator. First, God is all-powerful over creation. Look first at the immensity of God compared with creation. Verse 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighted the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? This phrase in verse 12, the waters, is shorthand for all the waters of the entire world. You either live in Hilton Head or you're visiting here. And so I assume at some point in your time here, you stood on the beach and looked out over the ocean. Maybe you've had the privilege of of being in an airplane and flying over the ocean and looking out at the window and seeing that it just keeps going. You fly for hours and hours at hundreds of miles an hour, and the ocean just keeps going. And that's just the one that you happen to be flying over, usually the Atlantic. That's not to mention the Pacific and Indian and Arctic and all the other oceans in the world. And Isaiah pictures God here as holding them all right here in the palm of his hand. All the oceans of the entire world, the immensity of our God to be able to do that. Now, this is a picture. God is not physical. He's a spirit. But Isaiah is calling us to imagine just the immensity of the power of God. He goes on, too, to say he measures 
marks off the heavens with a span. A span is a unit of measurement that we don't often use today, but it's that. The distance from your thumb to your pinky is a span. And Isaiah gives us the picture of God creating the universe and saying, how big should I make this thing? That seems about right. Our God is immense. And Isaiah continues to pile on the analogies. He measures the dust of the earth together. Have you ever tried to gather up dust? It doesn't react well when you try and gather it. And, and, and Isaiah says he gathers up the dust of the earth together. He weighs something as huge as mountains on a scale. Our God is immense. But notice, too, the power of God and his wisdom over creation. Look at verses 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Taught him knowledge? Showed him the way of understanding? Isaiah is saying that not only is God immense over creation, he's wise over creation. No one told God how to do his job, what justice was, what wisdom is. He didn't have to consult with anyone when he made the earth, when he set up creation, when, when he, he set the stars in the sky. This sounds very much like God's questioning of Job. You remember at the end of the book, Job finally gets to a point where he, he's ready to interact with God and say, God, why did you do this to me? And God says, sit down, we need to have a talk. Where were you? When I made the mountains, where were you? When I drew the boundaries of the sea, where were you? When I made the beasts of the world, where were you? Do you provide for them, Job? Do you bring rain on the earth? Job, your very ability to question me is contingent on the fact that I made you. There's a picture of me as a five-year-old, five or six, something like that, cute as a button, um, <laughs> sitting on a plank of wood, two by eight, two by 10, something like that. And there are several nails beside me that have been started in the wood pointy in in the wood, so it's not dangerous. And I have a hammer that I'm using both of my hands for because, you know, if, if one hand's enough, then two's better, right, with a hammer. And I'm just slowly tapping in these nails into this piece of wood. It's a really cute picture. Um, I'm adorable. And, but what's going on around this picture helps to put it in context. What's going on around this picture is that my dad, who's a builder, a carpenter, is building a two-car two-story garage with a shop on the back and a walk-in walk storage shed underneath. And I wanted to help because five-year-olds want to help their dad. They want to feel important. They want to feel like they're adding something. And so dad started a bunch of nails in this piece of wood and said, here, hammer those in. And that'll be helpful. Um, he didn't specify that it'll be helpful by keeping me out of the way, but I felt like I was being helpful. The picture Isaiah gives us here is of little five-year-old me hammering in nails that my dad started looking up at him and saying, I think you're cutting that rafter tail wrong. I really think you should be bracing that wall with two by sixes instead of two by fours. And, and maybe you should consider using 16 penny nails instead of eight. Dad, I, I don't know. That's just my five-year-old opinion. It's a ridiculous picture because the only reason I'm able to sit on that board and hammer in nails is because my dad started them. The only reason that anything in creation is able to interact with God, to question God, is because he made it. Isaiah says that God is immense over creation in his size, and he is immense over creation in his wisdom. This helps give clarity to our beliefs about creation and about God. This is one of the functions of the creed that it gives us clarity. And it gives us clarity in this. New Age philosophy is on the rise today, and one of its teachings is something called pantheism. 
that everything is included in God, that God is somehow made up of the created universe. Either we're all a part of God or that the chairs and trees and seas and skies are all part of God. And in some forms even that the creation itself gives birth to God, that, that God is the, the life of creation in, in a pr- produced way, not in a life-giving way. But Isaiah says no. Creation can't be identified with the creator. That The creator can't hold water in his hand if he's contained in the water. He can't speak justice into the world if he's contained within the world. God is distinct from creation. We actually call this the creator-creature distinction. That God is not the world. That he's separate from it. And basically what it means is this. There is one God, and it is not you. In comparison to the size and wisdom and power and glory and goodness of God, there is no competition. There's one God, and it is not you. He is distinct. He is glorious. He is above all creation. But notice something else about the power of our God. This immense, all-wise God is powerful in his involvement with creation. Look at verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Isaiah calls Israel to look up to the heavens, to lift up your eyes and consider who made these, who made all these stars. And we know the answer. We've already established that God made them, but that's not what he says when he answers the question. He goes on to describe what God does. Who made all the stars? The same one who day after day night after night, calls them by name and brings them out. He is intimately involved with his creation. He he knows his creation. He doesn't forget any of them. Day after day, night after night. Who is this almighty creator? The same one who is the ever-present sustainer. And here the creed gives clarity against a different error, the error of deism that says there's a God that created the world, that set it all up, that gave physical rules of gravity and all the kinds of things that go on and said, okay, it's up to you guys. I set it up. I got it started. You guys run it now. And the creed says no. And Isaiah says no. Our God, creator of heaven and earth, is involved in his creation. So the creed brings us clarity in those two things, but it also brings balance. Because we worship a God that is glorious above all creation and yet knows it intimately and cares for it particularly. I think the closest we can get to an understanding of of this contrast, the immensity of God coupled with his care for us, is in the modern fairy tale, Horton Hears a Who. Horton is an elephant, in case you're unfamiliar with the story. And elephants have large ears, so presumably they hear really well. And Horton one day is walking through the jungle of Newell in the heat of the day in the cool of the pool. And a speck of dust floats past his ear and he hears something on the speck of dust. The speck of dust lands on his flower and Horton goes to investigate and starts having a conversation with the speck of dust that's on a flower. And finds out that there's an entire civilization on the speck of dust. The Who's live on the speck of dust. And Horton, this huge elephant who, if he sneezed, would obliterate the flower and the speck of dust in their civilization, takes care of the flower. If you remember in the story, Vlad the Vulture and the Wickersham brothers and this antagonistic kangaroo are all trying to destroy the speck, but Horton protects it. That brings us a little bit closer to an understanding of the immensity of our God and his tender care for us. 
It, it's not perfect because Horton didn't create the spec and he can't take on flesh and enter into the spec, but it, it brings us a step closer to seeing just the contrast of the power of God and his immensity and his wisdom, and yet the power of God and his care for us. Isaiah shows Israel that their God is powerful over creation, and we would think that that's enough for him to say, God's powerful over creation so he can do what he said he's going to do. But Isaiah gives us more. He says, secondly, that God is all sovereign over creation. Sovereign, sovereignty is just a fancy way to talk about kings, thrones, rule, ownership. So when we're saying that God is sovereign over creation, we're saying that he owns everything and he's the one in charge. Look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Remember Israel's situation here. They're, they're reeling from an attack from the Assyrians and facing the threat of a Babylonian invasion. They, they're terrified of the nations because they're not a strong nation. We have difficulty identifying with this because we are a strong nation. Uh, as of last year, there were 39 aircraft carriers in the world. Uh, aircraft carrier is a boat big enough that a plane can take off and land from it and on it. 39 in the world, 19 of them belong to us. In case you're bad at math, that's just under half. So we can go toe-to-toe with the rest of the world in aircraft carriers and come up one short. We can't identify with Israel in this. But Israel is not us. Israel is, is the nation that we're looking at and saying, okay, they're in our crosshairs. And God says that the nations, the world powers, the threats to Israel, the Egypts, the Assyrias, the Babylons, and over time, Greece, Rome, the British Empire, the United States of America, are a drop in a bucket. Actually, a drop from a bucket. Isaiah has, would have us picture God walking along, carrying a bucket, and one drop falls out, and that's the nations. That's us. That's world powers. And if you've got a bucket full of water and one drop spills out, you don't stop and try and collect it. You just keep on moving because you have a whole bucket. The nations are insignificant to God. They're dust on the scales. Blow it off if you want to, or don't. It's dust. It doesn't matter. It's not going to affect the measurements. God tells Israel through the prophet Isaiah that even though it looks like you have no hope, even though it looks like you're about to be squashed like a bug, squashed like a speck on a flower, God is the one in charge. He's the one pulling the strings. Furthermore, there's nothing that those nations can do to influence God, to make him change his mind about his people. Look at verses 16 and 17. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. The pagan notion of how religion worked was that you worship your gods, and to worship them, you made sacrifices. You gave them something, you burned something on an altar, uh, maybe you sacrificed something to them, and in turn, those gods are now obligated to you. They have to give you what you need. They have to give you uh, what you require of them. And the greater the offering, the more the obligation on the deity. So Isaiah says, let's try this out with God. Let's take Lebanon, a region renowned for its forest, its cedar forest with huge trees, fragrant, aromatic. You know, when, when Solomon is building the temple, he gets timber from Lebanon. When he's building his palace, he gets timber from Lebanon. And the young man in Song of Solomon, when he's trying to compliment his beloved, tells her that the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. 
Guys, try that out this afternoon. Sweetie, you smell like cedar, like a car air freshener. Imagine all this cedar forest, Isaiah says, warm, crisp, huge, imposing. Let's gather all of those up and let's make an altar with them. And let's take all the animals that used to live in those forests and put them on top of the altar as a burnt offering. That's what we're going to offer to God. And what does Isaiah say it's worth? Less than nothing and emptiness. God is not swayed by those things. He does not change his mind regarding his people because he already owns all of those things. He's the one ruling it. He's the one in charge of it. Verses 21 through 24, we're not going to look at them. They continue to draw this out. He sits enthroned above the earth. He sets up princes and kings, and when he desires to, he takes them down. As Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wants to. So what does that mean for us? Your God is king. And kings are to be obeyed. More specifically, our God is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We obey him above any other thing. We are to obey God, not rulers of men. Consider Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We are to obey God, not employers. Consider Joseph and Potiphar's house and the advances of Potiphar's wife. We are to obey God, not culture. Consider Peter and the apostles in front of the Sanhedrin who say, stop preaching about Jesus. They say, no, we must obey God, not men. Now, don't misunderstand me. Yes, we obey rulers. Yes, we obey employers. Children, you obey your parents. Yes, we interact with and in some ways uh, accustom ourselves to culture and to the customs of the day. But where those things butt against the word of God, where they conflict, we say, no, we resist. We must obey God, not men, because our God is sovereign over creation. So Isaiah has shown us that God is powerful over creation, and that he's all sovereign over creation. And then he piles one more on top of it. He says he's all glorious over creation. By the time Isaiah gets to verse 18, he's covered a lot of ground. He's talked about God's power, God's wisdom, his ownership, his rule of everything. And then he says to them, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and cast for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. <clears throat> Israel, at this point in their history, is extremely idolatrous. They will worship anything. The gods of the people that lived in the land before them, the gods of the people that are invading them, uh, lots of temptation around them to worship idols, and they're really bad at resisting temptation. And Isaiah here calls them out for it. And and he does it by actually making fun of them. I don't know if you picked up on it, but but as as he describes this process, it's like he's looking, oh, you decided to make an idol. That's great. Ooh, it's shiny. It's very pretty. Look at all that gold and silver. And you obviously spent a lot of time on it. It's very detailed. You must care about this a lot. But is it working right? It's not moving. Shouldn't something you give your worship to, something you praise, something you depend on, shouldn't it at least be able to move on its own? Isaiah points to the futility and to the foolishness of what they're doing. And he tells them quite simply that you're wasting your time worshiping idols. God alone is to be worshipped, to be glorified. 
This is the basic error and continues to be the basic fault of mankind, that we worship the created things instead of the creator. Isaiah here is just reminding them of the second commandment. Shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Moses, Isaiah, say nothing in creation compares to the creator. You have two options when it comes to the object of your worship, the creator or a creature. And one of them is a waste of time. So don't even try. Worship God is what Isaiah calls the people to. So what about us? You know, we may feel more advanced than those silly pagans who worship the sun. We may feel more enlightened than those heathens that worship a goddess of fertility or the ancients that worship the god of a harvest. But are we really? We say we don't worship the sun, but the life of leisure that the sun represents, relaxing in the sun, playing golf, tennis, having a good tan, A quick Google Maps search this morning revealed that there are six tanning salons in Hilton Head and Bluffton. And guys, we live at the beach. You don't need to go to a tanning salon. We worship the sun. We may not worship a goddess of fertility, but we do have a cultural idol of youth, of novelty. I mean, we're quick to agree with the writer of Proverbs when he says the glory of a young man is his strength. But do we agree when he says the splendor of an old man is his gray hair? Do we agree when he says gray hair is a crown of glory that it has gained in a righteous life? We worship fertility. We may not worship a God of the harvest, but how many of us face the constant temptation to sacrifice our marriages, our families, our witness on the altar of career and a bigger paycheck? We're not immune to idolatry. We're just more subtle about it. We're just better at hiding it. And Isaiah tells us that's a waste of time. These idols, these created things can't move. They can't help you, so why are you worshiping them? They can't move. They can't hurt you, so why are you afraid of them? If you're not worshiping the creator, you're wasting your time. So worship him. Why keep wasting your time with idols when we can worship the creator himself? Isaiah calls Israel to behold their God, and he, and he, he, he shows God to them. Shows God as the, the almighty creator, the all-powerful, the all-sovereign, the all-glorious. Then he brings it home to them. Look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My right is disregarded by my God. Have you ever asked those questions? Have you ever been at a place of of suffering or struggle where you've said, God, don't you see? Don't you notice? Don't you care that I'm suffering, that I'm being persecuted, that I'm sick, that I'm stuck on the side of the road? Don't, Don't you see? Don't you care? Listen to Isaiah's response in 28 and 29. And notice how he brings in all these different aspects of creation and answering that that heart question from us and from Israel. Isaiah says in 28, guys, don't you know? Haven't you heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. 
He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Isaiah says he's the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He is all-powerful. Your God is able to help you. Isaiah says his understanding is unsearchable. He is all-wise. He knows what you need. He knows your rights. He is the Lord, the ruler. All heaven and earth is at his disposal to do with what he wills. And unlike the lame idols that can't move, he gives it to his people. He actually delivers what his people need. And then Isaiah gives us a picture. He says, picture a young man. You're the symbol of youth and energy and endurance. Even they're going to get tired. Even they wear out. But Isaiah says, when you rely on the Lord, your strength is renewed. And it's not a just enough strength. It's not a just enough to get by strength. It's strength that soars on wings like eagles. It's the picture of running and never getting tired. Of walking and never feeling like you need to take a break because your ankles are sore. Your knees start to hurt. Continual supply. Isaiah looks at the people of Israel, says, Behold your God, shows him to them, says, Won't you trust in him? And this is the invitation to us this morning, and it's all the stronger because we have the example of Christ, the Creator Himself, who took on created flesh, who entered into the created world. And our Lord and His ministry on earth showed Himself to be this Creator. He noticed and cared for creation. The religious leaders of of their day went out of their way to ignore the helpless. Christ sought them out. He sought out the poor, the lame, the marginalized, the suffering, and bore them up. Christ showed that he was the one in charge, that he's the sovereign of creation. He stilled storms. He cast out demons. He raised people from the dead. And unlike idols that only demand life, Christ gave his for his people. Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And even now, ascended into heaven, our Lord continues to do these things. He notices and cares for us. He is right now interceding before the Father for you. He rules creation. He is right now, somehow, at the same time, both on his knees before the Father and sitting, ruling, enthroned over heaven and earth, Restraining Satan, protecting you, preserving his church until the fullness of his children are brought in. And he provides for us. He moves to give us life. His spirit, bread and wine, washing with water, communion of saints, his word read and studied and preached. Our Lord Christ notices, rules, and supplies for us. Won't you trust him? Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. Behold your God, the all-powerful, all-sovereign, all-glorious creator of heaven and earth, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled when we consider your glory over creation. We are all struck at your majesty, at your beauty, at your power. We are humbled by the fact that, that you rule, and yet we so desperately want to tell you how you should rule. We are humbled by the fact that we continue, for some reason, to serve idols that we made and that can't help us or hurt us. 
Father, we're humbled this morning when confronted with this all-powerful, all-glorious, all-sovereign creator. Father, help us to keep those things in front of us. In doing that, to worship and to trust. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.